Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to Burn by Books. I'm your host, Chris Holmes. And if you've been joining me for the first two episodes and are here again, I just want to give a special thank you to those of you who've been coming along with me on this journey. It has allowed me a wonderful new form of communication with the outside world that while it hasn't replaced what we've lost in this moment of quarantine, It has been an extraordinary source of solace for me. So thank you, and I hope you keep listening. These last few weeks have been graduation time for students all around the country. And as a professor of literature, my mind has been with those graduating students who are experiencing a rite of passage unlike any that students have seen for near about 100 years. While graduation time usually means a return to home for college students, these students have been home for three months or more, and they're needing to find new ways to integrate into places that they think of as their childhood home, to rules that have not counted for them in quite some time, and they'll be needing sources of distraction the best kind of distraction, where you get lost in a story. And I think I need that too. And I'm guessing you do as well. I'll go off book for a second to say that I've been taking in some extremely good television. I know golden age of television, blah, blah, blah. But at this particular moment, I've been making my way through the streaming services and finding gems that are not from this country, not from this moment. And I wanted to share a few of those since the episode title this week is Distraction, drawn from the book that we're going to be spending our most time with this week. But I've found a few shows have been um, wonderful forms of distraction for me, and I wanted to point you in their direction. I will say with only a small amount of embarrassment that the thing I've spent the most time with outside of reading and writing and the regular week's work is a podcast that you probably know about as it is an international phenomenon. But my dad wrote a porno is one of the funniest, most original podcast stories out there. It has four or five seasons at this point, and it is re-listenable to maybe like nothing else. So seek it out. It's not really what it sounds like. It is not as salacious as it might seem, but it is extraordinarily funny. I have been watching a Spanish series with great enjoyment, La Casa de Papel, which is translated Money Heist, is a bank heist 
show to end all bank heists. It's set in the Madrid National Mint, and at least the first two seasons are spent with the robbers that we come to empathize with trying to get out of that mint that is constantly surrounded. Another series that I discovered, False Flag, finds five Israeli citizens waking up to see themselves on television accused of a covert operation to kidnap the Iranian foreign minister, yet they have no memory of such a thing. It's a show full of twists and surprises, and I wondered why it was not already known everywhere, and so I hope you'll check it out. The adaptation of Sally Rooney's Normal People for casting alone is worth watching, and I know that I'll want to spend some time with that novel later on in another episode, so perhaps we can talk again about the adaptation, but I would encourage seeking it out. And finally, Mindy Kaling's hysterically funny and occasionally transgressive sitcom Never Have I Ever is just the right thing for me right now, and I ate up the six episodes in no time at all. But back to the good stuff, back to the books. This week, I've got a recommendation for a most unexpected work of literary fiction, Nothing to See Here by Kevin Wilson. And I can't wait to share with you one of the best de debut novels in quite some time, Days of Distraction, and my interview with its author, the brilliant Alexandra Chang. And I'll end this week's episode with two kinds of distraction reading recommendations, escapist and punch in the facist. You're listening to Burned by Books. And welcome back to Burned by Books. If someone had told me I'd want to read an entire novel about nannying for children who catch on fire, I'd have said it depends, but probably not. But along comes my favorite novel of 2019, full stop, Kevin Wilson's Nothing to See Here. If you've ever bemoaned the lack of real comedy in serious literary fiction, and not the tee-heeing at a fly-by pun, but rollicking, break-your-ribs funny. You haven't been reading Kevin Wilson. His first novel, The Family Fang, was a revelation in dysfunctional family comedy, and it was adapted into a film starring Nicole Kidman and Jason Bateman. Wilson, to this point, may have been best known for his perfected gems of short stories, the models for many a starry-eyed grad student, collected in two different collections. But nothing to see here is the coming together of what I think of as Wilson's three driving tensions that show up in each of his works. First, Tension between the haves and have-nots in America, often set in the southern states. The second is the rawness at the bleeding edge between humor and disgust, comedy and chaos. 
And finally, much like John Irving, Wilson revels in the tension between our idea and ideal of what a family is and should be, and the reality and extraordinary goodness to be found in the makeshift families that sustain us. To that point, yes, Nothing to See Here is nominally about a young woman named Lillian who cares for her childhood friend Madison's stepchildren, who happen to burst into flames if angered or annoyed, but it is, in my opinion, one of the great novels written about families that begin in chaos and dysfunction and end still in chaos, but cut through with real love and connection. The kind of love specific to the families we choose to attach ourselves to, rather than those that demand attachment by virtue of blood. The novel is also a remarkable takedown of the moneyed classes, and particularly a setting fire to the supposed gentility of the old money families that stumble into positions of power and then claw and scrabble and masquerade and do unspeakable things to hold on to that power. How dirt-poor Lillian comes to care for the children of a radically wealthy acquaintance isn't a funny story. Privilege used to kick the ladder out from underneath the working class. Nor is the story of Lillian's painful transition into caretaker for two of the more impossible children in literature. But the novel loves Lillian and the twins with such exuberant joy and Wilson lets his delight with the play and sound of language wash over them like a weighted blanket. I will leave you with one of my favorite moments in a novel full of moments that you will want to read out loud to the person next to you. This is the point at which Lillian is being told by her high school acquaintance slash friend, Madison, that she would like her to be the caretaker for her stepchildren. But they have an affliction that she will need to know about, but keep secret. Madison's new husband is running for senator, and the family is determined to do whatever they need to to keep these two bothersome children out of the public eye. Lillian knows that something is going to be revealed to her, but in the section that I'm about to read you, she's not sure quite what it is. And here's Lillian. I had a quick flash of what might come. It was sexual, some kind of abuse that had left them hollowed out shells. That notion transformed into some kind of disability, missing limbs, horrific facial scars, a sensitivity to sunlight, a mouth without any teeth at all. And then it moved to homicidal impulses, kittens drowned in bathtubs, knives at the ready, of course, Madison would wait until I had given myself to her. They have a unique, I don't know what you call it, kind of affliction, she began, but I couldn't keep quiet. Do they not have any teeth? I asked, not frightened, but merely wanting to get it over with. Did they kill a kitten? What? No. Just listen to me, okay? 
They have this affliction where they get really overheated. Oh, okay, I said. They were delicate little kids, didn't like exercise. Fine. Their bodies, for some reason that doctors haven't quite nailed down, can quickly rise in temperature. Alarming increases in temperature. Okay, I said. There was more. I just spoke to make Madison keep talking. They catch fire, she finally said. They can, rarely of course, burst into flames. Are you joking? I asked. No, God, of course not, Lillian. Why would I joke about something like this? She said. Well, because I've never heard anything like this. Because it just seems like a joke. Well, it's not a joke. It's a serious condition. Jesus, Madison, that's wild, I said. I haven't seen it okay, she replied. But Jasper has. I guess the kids get really hot when they get agitated and they can just catch fire. I was in shock, but the images felt easy in my brain. Honestly, children made of fire. That seemed like something I wanted to see. And so I'll leave you there with the hopes that you'll be wanting to find your way to Kevin Wilson's fiction, and in particular, nothing to see here. When we return, an interview with debut novelist Alexandra Chang. Welcome back to Burned by Books. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome Alexandra Chang to the podcast. Alexandra received her MFA at Syracuse University, and she is the author of a much-beloved debut novel, Days of Distraction, the story of a writer at a prestigious technology magazine who journeys across the country from San Francisco to Ithaca, New York, finding that perhaps very little has changed about America's relationship to immigrants and minority communities since the beginning of the 20th century. The narrator demands more of those around her than they appear to be able to give, and she documents the sacrifices required of her and other Asian American women. You will not find a more perceptive narrator who manages to cut through the niceties that blind us to historical wrongs while simultaneously welcoming the reader into the intimacies of her life and mind. I was lucky enough to read Days of Distraction early in the fall, and it has not left my mind since. George Saunders called her one of the most important of the new generation of American writers, and I couldn't agree more. Welcome to the show, Alexander Chang. Thank you so much. That was a really lovely introduction. Well, it's a really lovely book, and I'm so glad I get a chance to talk to you about it. The episode is um, riffing off your title, and we're talking a lot this week about distractions. Um, but this book, which I had a chance to reread, is the most wonderful kind of literary distraction. Um, I love to ask uh, my favorite authors what they themselves are reading. And so I was wondering, what is the book that's currently sort of calling to you from the nightstand? I am reading Shruti Swami's story collection. It's a debut collection called A House is a Body. And 
I'm fortunate enough to be reading an advanced copy. So uh, it's not out until August, but I started it a few days ago and it has been sitting on my nightstand ever since. Um, it's these stories are about, I don't, I don't even know like what necessarily sort of coheres all of the stories besides the fact that they're all written by this writer who is incredibly perceptive about the ways people um, feel like distant from one another while also like still having these uh, strong desires to connect. Um, is this a debut yeah. collection? Yes, it is. Okay. Yeah, it sounds fabulous. What's the name again? A House is a Body. Well, we'll um, put that a link to that on the on the website so that people can find it once it's out in August. But it sounds great. Yeah, it's so good. I think some of her stories are also available online. Um, I'm pretty sure she's had stories in like uh, various fancy literary journals. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's some of that in your narration as well, that sense of how you can both be sharing such an intimate space with someone and yet still often feel quite distanced from them. And I realize that's that's kind of maybe something of the human condition, but it felt like something you were exploring in particular. Is Was that on your mind at all with this novel? Yeah, it was. I, I think that's on my mind even beyond the novel, just in my like daily life, this, this feeling sometimes of loneliness when you're even around other people. And even when you're with people who you feel very intimate with, um, like family or friends or partners. Uh, and there are these moments where you feel very disconnected or I feel very disconnected, um, from those people. And I, wanted to explore that feeling a bit more uh, in the novel uh, through this narrator who has those similar challenges, I guess, of trying to bridge this gap that she experiences when she's with others who she clearly like loves and cares for, um, but is not always connecting with on the level that she's hoping to. I feel like COVID has put a finer point on that since you are more likely to be around people in an enclosed and, and probably intimate setting and yet feel distinctly lonely. At least I have that experience, um, despite the fact that sometimes your, you know, your proximity is uh, closer and with more regularity to someone else because we're not leaving the house very often. But I, yeah. de but I definitely sense that more. It's, it's heightened in a, in a weird way. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think that I mean, it has to do with that, that feeling of never fully being able to understand another person. Um, I don't know, other people are mysteries. So that ends. <laughs> that's just the case, I guess. <laughs> of our existence. It has been bumming out uh, humankind for all all eternity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that's not to say that, you know, we can't feel these moments of closeness too. true. 
Well, Days of Distraction is your first novel, which frankly I find shocking given its assurance and the completeness of the narrative. First books I find will often have sparkling beginnings or really kind of dazzling, innovative narrative ploys within them, but then may flag later on. Um, how long did it take you to write Days of Distraction? And how did you decide on this particular narrative voice? Thanks so much for saying that about my book. Uh, that's really kind of you. It's very true. <laughs> it took me, as for how long it took me, it took about, I think from very start to finish, um, around four years. And the voice came to me pretty naturally. I, I started writing um, in these like bursts when I, when I very first started writing the book um, before I even thought of it in my mind as a novel. Um, and those, those little bursts, uh, these scenes and musings and captured uh, moments, or like overheard moments, those kind of all cohered under this, this kind of narrative voice that um, just sort of took over, I guess. It felt natural to me, I guess, but maybe a more stylized, refined, edited version. Mm -hmm. uh, my sense of the the narration is that on one hand, there's this kind of distance and in, in a way that we've been referencing with a feeling of distance from intimates, but also a kind of um, a, a joy in being able to pull back and look at things. So it's not always about kind of... Um, abstraction from people you love or have kinship with the the narrator really seems to like to kind of pull back into herself and be able to perceive the world with some distance because it gives her an ability to um, to think it through more than she would in a kind of a, in an immediacy of action yeah i do think that's true um and that's something that's true to my own experience. I think in an actual moment where I'm like in the moment and exchanging some sort of having some sort of conversation with somebody, I might not be able to like fully process like what's happening. But if I'm watching two people talk as this narrator does a lot or watching people move throughout the world, it's somehow more, I guess, more satisfying. Um, because it's easier to sort of figure out what you think about something when you're not like as involved in it. Uh, so I think that the narrator in this novel likes to pull back and give herself that space to sort of figure out what she thinks about something once she's like isolated from it or um, looking back on it. It seems to me that's the, the writer's most basic impulse is that when given the chance to sort of sit back and observe and to feel that the writer can then um, pull something from that observation that is truer to life, maybe than more immediate experiences. And that sort of leads me to my next question, which is about a, a genre that I feel like has been on fire recently in contemporary literature, specifically American, but, but also beyond our boundaries. We seem to be living at a kind of high point in the modern form of what's called autofiction, 
Rachel Cusk, Jenny Ophel, Sheila Hetty, Teju Cole, Carl Knausgaard, and Ben Lerner, just a few of the big names in this genre of fictive life writing, and who have brought it to a new kind of prominence. What do you think is the appeal of the genre? And do you feel that you are in some ways working within it? I find a lot of those writers very appealing. Um, I love many of their books. Uh, and I guess what I find appealing about reading books that are classified as autofiction um, is this feeling of the writer being both intimate and aware. Um, and being able, I, I think a lot of these books gesture at the author and the narrator, like having, you know, being, having shared experience, um, and like sort of blurring the, the line between the two. Um, but then at the same time show this awareness that they're doing this, like in, in moments in the book. Uh, and I find that like, I don't know if it's a trick so much, but like the feeling of reading something like that, I find very appealing. Um, and I think another thing that a lot of those writers share in common are, I guess, like writing about quieter moments um, in life, not necessarily all of them, but a lot of them do uh, just like more day to day life experiences, uh, these smaller moments that aren't necessarily, you know, big, uh, they're not like big dramatic moments in a character's life, but they still have meaning to those characters. Um, and I do think that I was working, I guess I was working within something similar to, uh, what these authors were doing. And I did learn a lot from several of them, like Sheila Hetty's, uh, how should a person be, was a book that I read uh, before I started writing this book, and I'm sure influenced my own in certain ways. Same with Jenny Offel's Department of Speculation. Mm -hmm. I mean, we also are writing. We're, um, I'm writing in this like fragmented form that she also uses, although to sort of a different effect. I think you could even say that Jenny Ophel is the master of that micro fragment form. And it seems like you enjoy a little bit more of a, a drawn out narrative scene than she does. Right. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I do think that, I mean, the fragments that I'm working with vary in length a lot more than hers. Um, and I think it's, I think it's a little bit funny to have um, Jenny Offal as categorized as a autofiction writer because she's never really talked about her work in that way either. Mm. Um, but what I've found about these people, these authors who get called autofictional authors, um, is that a lot of them don't necessarily, uh, really love the label, but I do think that, uh, yeah, I do think that I w am working in a similar vein as a lot of them. It's sort of this curse of the genre. It is both that I think it's incredibly engaging to readers. And even though there, there is kind of a sleight of hand in the way that there, it's both 
self can be self-referential, but also very novelistic. Um, but at the same time, the whole the the name of the genre and the kind of sensibility of the genre is it is in some way that fiction didn't have enough to appeal. So um, the drawing upon of what we think of as other sort of uh, you know related genres of memoir and life writing are called upon to kind of reinvigorate the the genre and i i don't actually think that's true and i don't think that's really what it's doing um but i i can see why a writer might kind of balk at the <laughs> at the term because it's you know these are i think really kind of wondrous novelistic experiments in in the best way that the novel has always been drawing from life um, and yet doing something different. Right. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I, I think that a lot of times people, when they talk about autofiction, are think that it's like much closer to memoir than it is to fiction. Um, but I think that actually autofiction is like, so firmly i i don't know we d maybe we don't talk enough about how like how much it exists in the the realm of fiction um and we talk a lot more about how like oh the narrator and the author have these similar similar biographical details and like isn't it cool that the author is like drawing from their own life like what do you think is true and not true but those are the questions that i feel like are less interesting than like how did the author manipulate or stylize or like shape and fictionalize like something that's comes from life but into this thing that is not life that is you know a world of fiction i think that's beautifully described did you have that that tension in in mind when you were writing i i'm not i feel like i was aware of the tension and um i I did think about it a lot of the time, but maybe not as much until the, like the later revisions um, where I started to feel a little bit more self-conscious about how people would perceive this novel. Um, but then I was also reading like some other books that uh, I guess could be categorized as autofiction, but or or metafiction, uh, like Valeria Luiselli's Faces in the Crowd. Oh, yeah. And um, and she does this thing in her book where the the narrator's husband at some point like reads her book. And I was like, that's so cool <laughs> that like she's sort of acknowledging that the the narrator who's like supposedly writing this book is having like some sort of conflicting experience like with her husband who's like reading the book i don't know it just like it, that metafictional quality was something that i started to uh think more about in the later revisions and incorporate a little bit more just to like emphasize that tension yeah uh, there's that scene that um made my stomach kind of churn when uh the character jay says oh boy the jay character doesn't come off so well in this and i thought it was a perfect use of that kind of metafictional um sense of the the writing coming to life within the book itself yeah and i wanted to sort of call into question like what the narrator is creating too i mean what she's writing or supposedly writing um is in conflict with like, you know, Jay's 
perception of reality. So yeah, calling into question like our own perceptions of what what's happening and how we fictionalize like even, you know, our lived experiences while they're happening. And that it can be powerful when those um, shaped senses of our lived experience encounter some other person's very similarly contoured and shaped life experience that may feel fundamentally different. Right. And, and that, right. Es especially with, a, I think, an, an intimate partner that becomes, those can be a fundamental question that it's, you know, can be a lifetime to get, to get by. Mm -hmm. And that's like the, I guess the central or one of the central conflicts of the novel um, between the narrator and Jay or between the narrator and her perception of Jay's perception <laughs> of the world. <laughs> um, part of my love of Days of Distraction comes from the ways in which the small events and transitions of a character's life resonate with the fundamental problems and questions of the United States. Eleanor Henderson put it really beautifully in, in her blurb where she says, the magic of this book is that its scale seems small, fixating on the minute details that make up our days as told through a grand restless consciousness. I think this is the great strength of the novel kind of writ large as a genre that it can focus on focus us like a point of light on the small habits and revelations of a single life and manage to make us see them as portentous in the history of a nation or the world. And the scale of this novel reads the personal injuries of racial racial discrimination against a broader history of racism in the U.S., First, I wanted to ask what drew you to tell the small and large story of contemporary racism in the nation? And, and secondly, how did you manage that tension between the single story of, ex of personal experience and the great wound of racism in American history? Yeah, those, those are both great questions. The, the first part of your question, I think what drew me to writing about the history of racism um, and contemporary racism in this country is just that uh, it's something that is always on my mind. Um, and, and I think I just needed to write about it because I always, I feel like I'm thinking about it a lot. I'm like living through it. It's, mm -hmm. uh, it's a, a big, it's a huge component of like, um, how I feel like I understand the world, which is like, actually, I it probably sounds sadder than, <laughs> um, than it is. But I think as as a woman of color in this country, it's impossible to exist outside of racism. And it's impossible to feel separate from the experience of race in this country. And in terms of that tension between the single story and and the greater wound of racism and wanting to write about, I guess, this one particular perspective, um, but gesture at like, you know, a larger history and a larger experience. That was, that's something I think you're right. That like, that's sort of like the strength of the novel um, and balancing it. I, I don't know if I did balance it super well, but I, I know that in the past, like when I've, 
remember when I was in uh, in Syracuse, I wrote this story about like a young woman who was like uh, who was visited by her father, and it wasn't very specific. I had kept it like very general, sort of in like the hopes that it would feel universal. Um, but my one of my professors was like this. This I, I don't even understand these characters because you don't you don't have enough detail in here you don't have enough specificity and he pointed out you know it is through specificity that we can get at something universal and I think maybe that's similar to what you're talking about it's like through wow. these small particular moments that this narrator is going through that we're able to or I hopefully am able to gesture at like you know. Um, a bigger experience or um, a larger problem. I, well, I think you certainly are. And I was struck by, especially, I, I feel like the way in which you utilize the historical and contemporaneous documentation of news stories as a kind of uh, counterpoint to the smallness of the events of the narrator's life is so successful and in a way that that kind of caught caught me off guard and it actually reminded me quite a bit of w wg zabald who often would draw upon these seemingly large-scale documents um or sometimes also very private documents but make a, a very you know a small ordinary life uh, echo against the larger scale of those documents the eponymous distractions in your novel are oftentimes these historical documents that talk about um, early Chinese immigration to the U.S., anti-miscegenation laws, the so-called Chinese panic um, of the very early 20th century and late 19th century. And it could easily have felt kind of clunky to have these in the story and yet i found them propulsive and by you know towards the end they they come in in kind of a column of fragmented news stories or documents and they really have a lot of pathos to them and imbue the um and imbue the character's life with a different kind of meaning and 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 a way for her to then think about what her what she believes to be sort of small actions in her life to have a much larger meaning within this context how did you decide that these kinds of historical vignettes would become a kind of sounding board for your narrator's own preoccupations i knew that i wanted to incorporate some historical research or some historical aspect to the story from the beginning. I just didn't know how I was going to do that for a while. Uh, but I think I knew that I wanted to because I felt like, like what you're saying, um, and thank you for saying all of that, that uh, it sort of gives a expand it expands the the story beyond the narrator and sort of also gives um, her actions this greater meaning to herself too um and i knew that it would feel a little bit claustrophobic if they're to me at least in writing it if i i didn't have some sort of outlet uh for the narrator mm -hmm. and ultimately like for me when i'm writing fiction i do a lot of research um i maybe as a 
procrastination tool, but also as a tool for inspiration. Uh, I was doing a bunch of research for this book, uh, just looking into Chinese American history, um, into the history of Asians in America, Asians who have married white people in America. And somewhere along the way, I just asked myself like, oh, well, why don't I just give this sense of research and discovery directly to the reader? I mean, to the narrator. Um, and that way she can be doing what I'm doing now <laughs> and figuring out this history uh, to sort of develop, develop her own lineage and develop a sense of self or an attempt at a sense of self uh, and hopefully attempt to find some answers uh, to the questions that she's asking. Towards the end, I feel like the historical documentation that comes to us comes paired in these, well, I guess not just in the end, but in, in a kind of increasing way comes paired with these contemporaneous accounts of how we're still essentially doing the same kind of ginning up racial antagonism between and and against one one race versus another, still doing the same kind of um uh, isolating a certain minority group in order to either exotify or um, viralize that group. And it's like so much in our contemporary Trumpian world, it is deeply disturbing to see that very little seems to have changed in the way in which the nation um, approaches its non-white citizenry. Did you find, I mean, you must have, but what was it like to sort of see that kind of almost direct parallel? It was sad and upsetting, I guess, to, to have to see my book come out in this time period when, you know, not only are we going through a global pandemic, but then we see, uh, you know, increased racism against Asians in America. We see in like it's the China the, virus. What was that? It's being called the China virus. Right. Yeah. By our president. Horrible. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, of course, like the racial disparities in this country become much more apparent during a health crisis. Um, you know, black Americans are dying at much higher rates from COVID-19 than than any other race in this country. Um, and yeah, it's sad that very little has changed um, when you think about it. Uh, but also another thing that with this book, when I was writing it, you know, I started writing it like right before the 2016 election. But I wanted to, you know, and I wrote I wrote it through like 2016, 2017, 2018. Um but I wanted it to be set in 2012 and 2013 also with um, this thought in mind that like, you know, things didn't suddenly get so much worse when Trump was elected. These things, this type of, you know, racism in this country has existed for a really long time. Mm -hmm. I think it just, uh, you know, became more apparent to certain people when Trump was elected or, or people started talking about it more. Um, 
Yeah, unfortunately, Trump yeah. gets used as a sort of excuse or a uh, a kind of catch-all for the supposed reemergence of, of racism when, in fact, he's just kind of evidence of its long historical, you know, ebbs and flows and constant uh, undergirding of the very nature of the country. Right. Yeah, I wouldn't say he's made anything better, but no. <laughs> yes, he's more of like this product of uh, end proof of this country's long history of racism and discrimination and yeah, <laughs> everything terrible about the country sort of is embodied in him. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, I will. I'll take a kind of 180 from the grim sensibilities of our current national uh, state as it concerns race and think for a second a little bit about the uh, the theme for this episode of distraction. Um, and I've been trying to think about what it means to be able to kind of distract oneself from the anxiety and, and grief and sadness associated with this period of time. And I find that depending on the person I talk to, that literary distractions um, fall into like two different categories for people that I know. They either are like pure escapism, either science fiction or fantasy, rom-coms where people are still allowed to hug and kiss, nostalgic rereads, period dramas, or the other camp is this desire to be enveloped by stories of pandemics, zombie apocalypses, nonfiction about the 1918 flu, deep dives into climate change, and general narratives of periods of objection. In the first episode of this podcast, I recommended Station Eleven, the great pandemic novel of the 21st century, in my opinion, but with a giant asterisk that it might be exactly the opposite of what a reader needs right now. Where do you fall on this divide, um, and can you recommend a handful of your distraction reading? I... I think I fall more on the side of escapism, uh, <laughs> but not necessarily feel good escapism. Um, I think I've been reading books that have nothing to do with pandemic and nothing to do with um, yeah this the the periods of objection that you mentioned. Um, one of the books, or I have a few books that um, I've been turning to, I have been revisiting. So I guess this is a nostalgic reread, mm -hmm. but revisiting a lot of the uh, Joy Williams short stories. Um, I have the visiting privilege just like on my desk, uh, just to like read a story here and there. Again, not necessarily feel good escapism, but... I'm not reading anything that she's writing about climate change either. <laughs> Another book that I read during this pandemic is New Waves by Kevin Wing. Oh, uh, I'm dying to I'm dying to read that. I haven't gotten Yeah, it's, yet, but. I think it's a good book to read in conjunction with mine. Um I wish I could do that. Uh, just because there's like a lot of overlapping themes, but he also ha he handles things very differently and approaches things very differently than I do. It is a story about grief, which, again, not the full escapism, I think that maybe this first camp is seeking, but um, nothing to do with pandemic again. And then another book that I really loved, I read this right before 
COVID started, you know, and all the stay at home uh, orders came into place. But this is a book that comes out in August. It's called Luster. uh, And it's by a writer named Raven Leilani. And this book, I think, is like a really great escapist read. But Mm. again, it's not out for until August. So some people might have to wait a little bit longer. But it's about a young woman in New York City. And there's there's just like a lot about like New York City life. Um, Subway smells and going to work in the city and I've never lived in New York, uh, but I felt like she captured sort of like the grittiness and the 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 ugliness of New York as a young person, but also how as young people like we sort of really want and crave that kind of place. It has a really striking cover from where I've yes, seen it. Yes, it does. <laughs> I've seen it about on people's and most anticipated lists, and I didn't know what it was about until you just told me, but that certainly makes me want to read it straight away. I'm one of those people who never lived in New York City, but am attracted to narratives of what it's like to live there and find it kind of romanticized in, in my mind because I don't have to actually live there. Um, but at that both the book as you describe it, but also it's really, it's got a really fantastic cover, which by the way, I think Days of Distraction has one of the best and most unique covers I've seen in at least a couple of years. It really kind of defied all the, what I think of as the current trends and color um, kind of matching and patterning. And it has uh, just a great sort of stylized line to it. And I wonder how much you had to say about its, um, about its creation. Thank you for saying that about the cover, because it did take a while to get to this cover. Um, I do think that like the art department did at echo did such a good job uh, in terms of like color and like the font. Um, I think I I heard somewhere that like light colored covers or like white or cream colored covers are like a no, no, but I was like, why they look cool. I guess it's that they get dirty faster, but but it really does (laughs) set it apart from what seems like very kind of striking block primary colors right now in, in cover design. Um, Mm -hmm. but I don't, you know, maybe I just haven't like, read it while I was eating chocolate or something, but it hasn't, it hasn't (laughs) been damaged too much. Um, and I just, I just love it. I think it's a really striking cover. We went through so many different colors for the scarf and I like (laughs) agonized over what color the scarf should be. Um, (laughs) which is funny to look back on because now I'm like, oh, well, it was always going to be this color. (laughs) (laughs) You picked correctly. (laughs) So have you been able to uh, do much? You said you're not doing much reading, but have you been able to do much writing during quarantine so far? And um, would you be willing to share a little bit about what you're working on? I just started writing again, like maybe a week ago. So it feels like very fresh to me um, and kind of scary. But I am working on a couple things. Um, I have a short story collection that is set to come out through Echo in late 2021 or early 2022. Um, And those include stories that I've been working on for several years. Um, So I've been going back to old ones and revising and working on a couple new stories as well. That's really exciting. Yeah, yeah. It feels weird to go back to stories that are, you know, six years old, 
and ask myself, like, how do I make this story better? Or is it just like this document that exists in this different time period? And it's okay that um, a writer different than the writer I am today wrote this story. And I think I'm leaning more towards the latter where I'm like becoming okay with the fact that I was a different person Mm. at that time period. And I don't need to mess too much with the old stories. But I did start also writing something new that I think could be a novel. uh, But it's still so early that it's kind of scary to talk about. I'm superstitious. (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I, I totally get that. And I think people will be excited that there's short stories to anticipate in the meantime. I hope so. Yeah. And those stories are, I mean, they're a much wider range. And I don't think that I only think one of them is written in like, I would say a similar style as the novel. And then the others are, you know, a wide range of um, forms. But they're all about Asian and Asian American characters. Uh, I think that's like probably the main thing that like, connects all of them. Well, I'll definitely be looking out for it. And I just want to thank you so much, Alexandra Chang, for being on Burned by Books and for such fabulous um, answers to these questions and such a nice discussion. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. Take care. Welcome back to Burned by Books. My friends and family, probably like yours, break solidly into two groups when it comes to distraction reading. For some, it's all about escapism. Genre fictions, the further set away from our present moment, the better. In quite a different mode, a poet friend of mine is deep diving into the pleasures of the Russian classics with tangents into Tolstoy's manifestos against prison systems. When I suggested that she was doing serious syllabus reading, she shot back that anyone who's read Gogol and Tolstoy will know that they are entertainment on the broadest scale. Her husband, in contrast, has a text chain chatting with other writers about Defoe's Journal of a Plague Year. Another academic couple have been reading William Maxwell's beautiful, elegiac remembrance of childhood loss during the 1918 flu pandemic. They came like swallows. For those in the stare it straight in the unblinking eye camp, there's the justifiably vaunted Severance by Ling Ma a narrative of the survivors of the Shin Fen virus that zombifies 90% of the world population. Despite the conceit, it is a dryly funny critique of late capital and a wholly new entry into the subgenre of, do I really want to survive the apocalypse with these losers? The virus itself memorably contrives the victims' bodies into the repetitive actions they performed in a life of work. If you prefer to vary your apocalypses, there's Jenny Ophel's latest micro-wonder, Weather. Since the Department of Speculation, everybody I know wants to live in Ophel's head, 
We marvel at how she maps out ethical, philosophical, and political meaning for the mundanity of the world with the fewest possible words. The stakes here are clear to us all. Climate apocalypse is coming. So why are we all sitting around making podcasts? If this is all a little too real for you, then there's the elephant in the room of genre escapism, the prequel to the Hunger Games trilogy, the ballad of songbirds and snakes. This edition picks up the story of an adolescent Coriolanus Snow years before he becomes the bespoke white suit wearing sadomasochistic president of the trilogy. I own it, and while the dialogue is pretty canned, I'm into it. It's the capital just after the war, and everything is shabby and raw. Finally, there's the essay collection of the year for me, Gia Tolentino's Trick Mirror. Tolentino, whose work for The New Yorker will be familiar to you, has brought together the vast diversity of her wandering cultural eye with essays that adhere to a viral cultural phenomenon the overwhelming power of social media and technological celebrity culture. She is captivating, funny, and wryly knowing in such an appealing way, you'll simply fly through them. Well, that's it for me for this episode. I want to thank you for continuing to listen and encourage you to subscribe on Apple's iTunes store will help bring new listeners to the podcast. Until next time, I hope that you're finding some things to distract you from sorrows large and small, and that you're staying safe. This was Burned by Books. <laughs> <laughs>